0: We all know about the power of empathy, but too much of a good thing can get in the way of leading well. On this episode, Marshall Goldsmith returns to explore some of empathy's downsides and how we can use that insight to show up more genuinely for others. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 590. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahovia. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us have the heart, the desire to show up genuinely for others. And yet it is a challenge to continually develop that skill and to channel that heart and that intention in such a way where we really do show up in a way that we can support people in their work to help them to grow and of course to help ourselves to be able to grow and to do great work as well. And I'm so glad to welcome back to the show today someone who's one of the top coaches in the world to give us some wonderful perspective on how to genuinely show up for others in an effective way. Marshall Goldsmith is one of the world's leading executive coaches and the New York Times best-selling author of many books. Including What Got You Here Won't Get You There, Mojo and Triggers. In his coaching practice, he has advised more than 150 major CEOs and their management teams, including clients like Alan Mulally, Francis Hesselbein, and Hubert Jolie. His newest book is The Earned Life Lose Regret, Choose Fulfillment. Marshall, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me back. Happy to be here. This book starts with a story about breath and a paradigm about breath. And this might seem like an odd entry point for those listening on showing up well for others, but I actually think there's a really key principle here on something you call the every breath paradigm. Tell me about what that is. Well, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not a religious Buddhist. I'm a
1: philosophical Buddhist. And a great Buddhist thought is every time I take a breath, it's a new me. And life is a series of constant reincarnations. So the me that's going to be at the end of this call is not the me that was at the beginning of this call. So as we go through life, we're constantly evolving, we're constantly changing. And to me, it's just a really healthy way and a positive way to look at life. The great Western disease is, I'll be happy when. Everything's Mm -hmm. going to be fine when. As if there's this place we're going to go to that takes lasts for eternity, and it's all going to be good after that. Yeah, there's a certain type of book that always has the same ending, and they lived happily ever after. Yeah, unfortunately, that's called a fairy tale. (laughs) That's a fairy tale. (laughs) In life, we're constantly reinventing. We're constantly changing, and every day we start over.
0: No surprise that empathy is on the list of showing up genuinely well for people. And you got me thinking a lot about it after reading this book. I think a a good indicator of A powerful book is one that gets you thinking about something you thought you knew in a really new way going forward. And you write in the book for a personal quality bathed in such a brilliant glow of goodness, empathy certainly has a way of making us feel bad about ourselves. It asks too much of us. We feel guilty when we can't summon empathy for someone suffering. There are a lot of pros and cons of empathy. I think most of us know the pros. What are the cons? Well I'm going to talk about four types of empathy. and with
1: each one, I'll briefly discuss a pro, but then, as you said, spend more detail on the the dark side of it. The first one is what I call empathy of understanding. That is, I understand where you're coming from. And as a as a coach and as a person with a PhD in this field, I'm actually pretty high on that one. and that helps me as a coach. I'm better able to give people advice because I understand their motivations. On the other hand, the empathy of understanding can have a very dark side. Advertisers totally understand this. They know more about where we're coming from than we do. Let me give you an example. Budweiser. Budweiser spends hundreds of millions of dollars on advertisements featuring a little dog and a big horse, the dog and the horse. Now, obviously, they spend this because they're very certain it's going to bring back more beer than the ad cost. Well, how many guys walk into a liquor store and say, you know, I'm buying that Budweiser beer because I love that little doggy." <laughs> Zero. <laughs> on the other hand, that is exactly what's going on. Budweiser has a great understanding of why you're doing what you're doing better than you do. Propaganda people are great of this empathy of understanding. Uh, there's an interesting uh, kind of a strange title for a book that says, Why Women Stay with Sociopaths. And one of the reasons is they understand where they're coming from. And that understanding is used as an excuse for their bad behavior. So the empathy of understanding is something that can be very positive. It can also be quite negative. The second one is probably more graphic the empathy of feeling. I feel your joy. I feel your pain. At one level, that sounds kind of glamorous. You know, as you mentioned, the whole idea of empathy is usually like puppy dogs and teddy bears. The empathy of feeling, I can feel your pain. Well, that's in theory, that sounds good. Let me talk about a real life case study I had yesterday. One of my great coaching clients, and I have the permission to discuss this, is Dr. Patrick Frias. Dr. Frias is head of the Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. Now, when he first went into his practice, he had to deal with kids who were dying of cancer. Mm. He said for the first two months he was in business, he went home and cried every night. Every night he would go home and cry. He said he was a wreck. He finally had to realize, I can't do that. I can't do that. Another one of my coaching clients says, I'm a volunteer at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I work with Dr. Jim Downey. He sees kids die of cancer all the time. He has to deal with their family. Well, feeling that pain is okay to a point, but Dr. Jim and Dr. Patrick, they have families. They have wives, they have kids, they have grandkids. You can't carry that stuff around. If you carry that stuff around, it'll just burn you out in almost no time and start to really... Hammer on your effectiveness. Autence Le Gentil is a great coach, and she said, I need to be able to get close enough to touch the person, but not to become it. I need to understand their pain, but I don't need to feel their pain because all of a sudden I start having their problem. The next type of empathy is the empathy of caring. That sounds nice. Caring? Who can attack caring? Caring sounds all good. Yeah. Caring is not all good. Let me give you the funny story in my book. And I love this example because it was one no one would have ever predicted a hedge fund manager who cared too much. Now, of all people (laughs) you think don't care, hedge fund manager would leap to the top of the page, right? I'm watching one hedge fund manager who years ago was worth a billion dollars interviewing another hedge fund manager who years ago was worth $3 billion. So you got the billionaire interviewing the three billionaire. And the billionaire guy says to the senior guy, why don't you have a fund anymore? You could raise a zillion dollars in no time. You could make a fortune. Everyone would line up. Why don't you have a fund? And the old guy said, I'm not as good. And then the young guy said, well, why not? You have all this wonderful experience, more than you ever had. He said, I started caring. I started caring. Now, he said, when I was young, obviously, I made people tens of billions of dollars. I also lost tens of billions of dollars, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. I won 52 percent. I lost 48 percent. I never thought about it. As I've grown older, he said, I started caring. I started thinking, wait a minute, this is somebody's fund for their retirement. They need this to go to college. He said, I started caring about all this stuff. And he said, I became much more conservative and much less effective. Hmm. Much less effective, and he said, "You know what I'm doing now? I just invest my own money. Why? Well, he didn't say this, but he's worth three billion dollars. Okay, let's say he makes a hundred million. Okay, now he's worth three point one. He loses what? He's worth two point nine. Who cares? Yeah. It's just a game anyway. Well, he's just investing his own money, and in a sense he doesn't care because he's just doing it for fun. He's doing it for personal interest, and he's more effective. This is why parents cannot operate on their children. They care too much." And his caring inhibits them from being objective, from being professional. And one huge problem we have with COVID is burnout. Burnout is a huge problem. What happened is people care too much. They bring it home. It gets to them. They can't sleep. They start worrying about everything. And again, it's not, it's not good for their health. It's not good for their families. And then the final empathy is the empathy of acting. The empathy of acting is, well, not only do I don't want do to understand where you're coming from and I can feel your pain and I care about you. I'm doing something about it. I'm here to help you. Sounds good. On the other hand, one of the great women I work with, I won't mention her name, is a wonderful person, highly respected, great leader. And she said, what's my biggest problem in life? I am a fixer. I am a fixer. I fix everyone else's problems. I'm everyone else's mother or grandmother. They have a problem, they come to me, I fix it. And she said, if I'm not careful, I people turn into children. I create dependency. They're not learning to do things on their own because mommy is taking care of everything for them. Well, each one of these kinds of empathies on the surface sounds wonderful. In practice, they all have a very dark side. And Dave, I wouldn't feel embarrassed about you not thinking about this before. Up until a year or two ago, I never thought about this before. I had the same opinion of empathy. Empathy is just a wonderful thing. Yeah. And here's what else we don't think about with empathy. That is, all of the discussion on empathy is how somebody else makes me feel. What we don't think about is how am I making them feel? See, Martin Lindstrom is a great friend of mine. I I, I do a a show with him, and uh, he taught me about mirror neurons. We tend to really all experience empathy in the sense if we see someone smile, we're more likely to smile. We, someone, we see someone cry, we're more likely to feel sad. This is just a very normal human reaction. It's not good or bad, it just is. We think about empathy as how do they make me feel? What we don't think about empathy is how am I making them feel? Let me give you an example. I did go to St. Jude's Children's Hospital, and my first instinct was to cry. That was my first instinct just to cry. I mean, you see these kids running around. They have no hair. You know, some of them are dying. I just felt like crying. What did I learn? You don't do that. That is the worst possible thing you can do. If that little kid comes up to you and you start crying, how does it make that kid feel? Hmm. It makes him feel like a monster. I make people cry. People see me and they cry. That is the absolute worst thing you can do for that kid. You need to ask yourself, not, how's this kid making me feel? How am I making this kid feel? And by the way, you're not helping that kid when you start crying. You may be thinking of your own feelings. You're certainly not thinking much of that kid's feelings. Does
0: this make sense? It does. And it it's something that I think so often we think about empathy, and you've alluded to this, that empathy is really good. The more empathy we have on all fronts, the better we are as human beings, the better we are as leaders. If I come home and I'm thinking about the challenge that we had today with a customer or with one of my employees, and I have internalized that and I'm thinking about that and I'm worried about that, that that makes me a good leader, that I'm showing up and I'm being really present and I feel people's pain. And what I hear you saying is, No, not necessarily. In fact, that might actually be getting in the way of you being present for people and actually showing up in the way they need you.
1: I think it's a great point. Let me give you two case studies. The book was largely developed because of incredible conversations that my friend Mark Thompson and I had every weekend for two years over the COVID period. Now, these were 60 people, and their names are all in the book who are amazing leaders from various fields. Uh, Pau Gasol, famous basketball star, was in the group. Curtis Martin, National Football League Hall of Fame. Telly Leung, Broadway star. We had the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, the president of the World Bank, uh, CEO of Cardinal Health, just CEO of Ancestry.com, CEO of Russell Investments, just amazing people from various walks of life and from many countries. Every weekend, they talked about their lives. And every weekend, they talked about what they learned. And one of the people in our groups is Telly Leung. Now, Telly played the role of Aladdin on Aladdin, the play Aladdin on Broadway, 1,000 times, literally 1,000 times. Hmm. So I was talking with Telly about empathy. And Telly said, look, I have to get up on that stage and demonstrate empathy. Now, Kelly is gay. He said, I may be gay. But you know what? When I get on that stage, I'm in love with that princess every night. I'm not gay when I'm up there. I am in love with that princess every night. And I go home, I'm not in love with her. But I'm on that stage, I'm in love with that princess. And then I asked Telly a question. How do you do it? How do you maintain this sense of connection with the audience 1,000 times? How do you do it? And he he told a story. He said, you know, I was a little boy, eight years old. and..." You know, little guy's life might might not have been so easy. And I went to a Broadway play and they had the singing and the actors and the music. And it was all so wonderful. It made me so happy. He said, every night I get out on that stage, you know, I tell myself this is for that eight year old kid. Mm-hmm. And if there's one kid in that audience like me, it's worth it. It's worth it. In other words, he's not out there for him. He's not out there because of how he feels. Maybe his aunt died last week, okay? Maybe his mother died. Maybe he's sad. Maybe his foot hurts. You know what? It's showtime. He's not there for them. He's there for that little kid. It's showtime, day after day after day after day. And To me, one of the most powerful things that that I learned over this period was from Carol Kaufman. Carol is the head of the founder of the Harvard Institute of Coaching, and she taught me this ask yourself one question, am I being the person I want to be right now? So when I'm at home with my wife and kids, really, somebody died at the hospital, it's not their issue. It shouldn't be their issue. I shouldn't bring that home. I've got to let go of it. Am I being the father I need to be to my kids right now? Am I being the husband I need to be to my wife right now? Or the wife I need to be to my husband right now? Or the partner I need to be? Or the friend I need to be? and to me we call it singular empathy which i think is really powerful because what we don't think about is how am i making them feel we think of empathy as what did they do to me we often just ignore completely how am i making them feel right now and and in essence the customer in the interaction is not you it's them
0: and the singular empathy is I'm focusing my my presence is with this person. I am thinking about how do I show up for them versus thinking about how does this make me feel or any other interaction that's happened with me that day that week whenever, right?
1: Exactly. And you know, my friend Martin Lindstrom has a good phrase for this called reset. And every time you go into a different meeting, you've got to breathe. You've got to breathe and you've got to say, reset, start over. Uh, I coach CEOs and a CEO might have to be nine different people in one day. They might have to go to a funeral, give positive recognition, go to a board meeting, do a negative performance appraisal. You know, they have to be nine different personas in a day. That's their job. They can't sit there and carry one to the next, to the next, to the next, because then they just can't do their job. They have to learn to breathe, start over breathe, start over. And connecting two dots, the empathy with the every breath paradigm, every breath, you start over. And you say, all right, who do I want to be now? Who do I want to be now for this person? Now, I'm going to tell you a couple of funny stories from the book. One of them is Dr. Raj Shaw. I love Dr. Raj. He's head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And you got to realize everybody's doing Zoom calls back in those days. And Dr. Raj is on this Zoom call. He's been trying to get this wonderful project involving multiple billions of dollars over the line. And it's really going to help the world a lot. And he succeeds. He does it. He walks out of the Zoom call and he's in his house, of course. And he's jumping up and down. Hooray, we did it. We did it. We did it. His daughter just got dumped from the boyfriend and is crying. Hmm. His son's computer is broken and he's freaking out and his wife is pissed off. And all three gave him the same message: "What a jerk are you? What a jerk! You're sitting there hopping up and down, talking about your day. Look around the room, buddy. You know what about us? You know all you think about is business. Well, Dr. Raj is a great human being. He forgot to reset. He was still in the Zoom call, and his family was not in that Zoom call. That didn't work. Uh, another great story is uh, Pau Gasol, the basketball star." One of the things Pal's working on is being present, especially with his wife, present. And every week, people talk about how they did. So Powell goes, well, you know, last week, not so good. You know, my wife kind of got upset with me. She said I really wasn't present and kind of checked out. So I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, what happened? Well, he said, you know, Marshall, I was tired. I was tired. I mean, I'm, you know, trying to make the Olympics. They made a documentary about it. I am in the documentary It's a great story about him going to make the Olympics and I'm working hard. And, you know, I'm 41 and I was kind of exhausted. I said, pal, that's interesting. You were tired. How tired were you? He said, Oh, I was so tired. I said, Yeah, that's interesting, pal. I, my son and I paid a thousand bucks each and went to a basketball game when the Lakers played on the World Championship against the Celtics, game seven. I was there. Yeah, you were running up and down the court like a banshee. Were you tired? He said, oh, I was exhausted. You can't believe how tired I was. Phil Jackson called timeout. Did you say, Phil, I'm tired? Yeah, Phil, I'm tired. Maybe i take a little break now, Phil. I'm tired. You know what he said? I never told Phil Jackson I was tired once in my entire career. I never told any coach I was tired. I said, do you think your wife is impressed?
0: Mm. This all comes back to breath in a way. You write. Empathy has few, if any, equals in reinforcing the every breath paradigm, reminding us that we are an endless series of old and new versions of ourselves. Empathy's greatest utility is how effectively it reminds us to be present. I hear that so strongly in the stories you just told and in hitting that reset button. And the criticism I hear from people when we have a conversation like this is, well, that's all well and good but then I'm not being me. I'm not showing up authentically. I'm not showing up as the real me. When you hear that kind of criticisms, I'm sure you do too from people, how do you respond to it?
1: It's what's your mission in
0: life. Is your mission
1: in life to just disclose whatever you feel? or Is your mission in life to help the other person? Peter Drucker taught me a good, a very good point. There's always a customer. Who's the customer? If you think you're the customer and the world needs to do something to help you and you want to talk about your problems with the world and expect them to help you, that is a brilliant strategy. If you care more about the other person than yourself, that's a terrible strategy.
0: Hmm. How do you make that shift? Because like the example with Paul is that so many of us are in that trap of, you know i'm thinking about me i'm thinking about how i feel i know a lot of leaders struggle with that as well too and, and yet you i know you've seen people who have made that shift who have been able to make that shift to show up with singular empathy and to show up in that moment and then be able to set it aside and then to move on the inter- next interaction for someone who starts to get traction doing that what is it that works for them to start to make that shift
1: Well, you know, ironically, you mentioned three leaders I've coached, so I'm going to go back and talk about those three. Sure. Uh, One of them is Alan Mulally. Alan Mulally, probably the greatest corporate leader in the world in the last 30, 40 years. He went to Ford. The stock was 101. He left, it was 1840. Stock went up 1,837%, even more impressive, 97% percent approval rating from a union company fortune magazine number three greatest leader in the world i love alan mulally i've talked to him all the time he's a good friend of mine i was his coach many years ago working on a book together how many times have i seen alan mulally ever down in my entire interaction with him over 30 years that answer would be zero zero it is showtime I have never seen him be down. I've never seen any self-pity. I've never heard him say, poor me, zero. Francis Hesselbein, Peter Drucker said the greatest leader he's ever met in his life. An amazing, amazing woman. I've known her for years. She's 106 years old now. How many times have I ever heard her complain in front of other people? That would be another zero. You know what? She is the leader. And she's not there for her. She's there for them. One great quote from Alan, he said, For the great achiever, it may be all about me, but for the great leader, it's not all about me. It is all about them. Well, to me, the analogy of a Broadway star is a great analogy. You're out there on stage. You're not there on stage for you. You're out there on stage for them. You need to be what you need to be for them. That is if you're interested in service. If you're interested in self-disclosure and you sit there and say, I just want to tell everybody my foot hurts today, well, knock yourself out. Whose needs are you taking care of, though?
0: Yeah. I think that so many people do want to be that kind of leader, and yet, is, is it as simple as the intention and the mindset of, I changed my intention and my mindset of how I want to show up? Or is there something that helps people in the moment to start to do that differently?
1: Well, there's two terms that are frequently confused. One term is the term simple. Another term is the term easy. Hmm. Everything I teach people is simple. I, you've known me for a while. You've read my books. I don't say anything complicated. Everything I teach people is simple. Nothing I teach people is easy. It takes incredible discipline to do this stuff. It takes incredible discipline to remember I'm home now, to remember this is my wife, this is my husband, these are my children. It takes incredible discipline to do this stuff. And is it simple? Yeah, it's not that complicated. Is it easy? Far from easy. Let me give you an example. One of the things I talk about in the book, and I maybe talked to you about before, is the daily question process. Yeah. It takes, takes three minutes a day, costs absolutely nothing, and help you get better at anything. Some people are skeptical. Three minutes a day, costs nothing, help me get better at anything. That sounds too good to be true. <laughs> Half the people who start doing this quit in two weeks. They don't quit because it does not work. They quit because it does work. It's hard to do. I, I have someone call me on the phone every day to make sure I do this for 25 years. Why? My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I got ranked number one leadership thinker and coach in the whole world. I'm too cowardly to do any of this stuff by myself. I'm too undisciplined (laughs) to do any of this stuff by myself. I need help. And you know what? It's okay. We all need help. Who are we getting here? This stuff isn't easy. It's hard. It's hard doing this every day. It's hard to remember where we are every day. It's hard to when you go home not to lose it every day. It requires all kinds of discipline to do this. And yeah, it's simple. You got to do it over and over. And here's the problem is you never get there. It's not like, gee, I went to this course and now I don't have to worry about it anymore. I read this course or I had this transformation or I had this realization. That's not real. That's a fairy tale. And they lived happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. The reality is every interaction you're starting over. It's starting over and starting over and starting over and starting over and starting over. That's life. That's life. And you never quote, get there. There's no there you're going to get. It's a constant series of reincarnations. And as you say, I think very aptly, leaders are not born, they're made. Sometimes I get asked that ridiculous question, are leaders made or born? You know what my answer is? So far, 100% of every leader I've met has been born. Yes, indeed, (laughs) they have indeed been born. (laughs) Silly
0: question. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few listeners over the years like, yeah, when you actually think about that term, it uh, doesn't quite make sense. And I, I totally get it. One of the invitations that you inv- inv- make for us and invite us to consider is the empathy of doing. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit about what does that mean? What is the empathy of doing?
1: Well, that means. Not only do I understand where you're coming from, I do something about it. I act on this. Uh, you have a problem, then I say, come on, I hear something I'm going to help you do. I'm going to do something about it. Now, again, it's somewhat stereotypical, but this is a typical husband problem. The wife comes to the husband and says, well, you know, I have this problem. The husband starts leaping into this doing fight. We'll do this and this and this and this and this. Oh, I'm not sure. Well, do A, B, 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 do this, another thing. Then the husband, well, what's wrong? You know, i am giving you two answers. You don't listen to me. Why'd you even ask? Well, really, the wife is not asking this person to solve the problem. This person is leaping into the empathy of doing, which is not at all what the person is asking for. They just want someone to listen to them. They want somebody to talk with them, not somebody to solve all their problems. And the other problem with this empathy of doing is if you do this too much as a founder, You never scaled a company. Why? Anyone comes to you with a problem, what do you do? Fix it. Fix it. And what happens is they don't learn to fix things themselves.
0: Hmm. How do you know when you're going down the path of doing the empathy of doing and you shouldn't be and you should be doing something else?
1: Uh, Let me give you a great example. And the higher up you are in an organization, what I'm going to teach you next, the higher up you go, the more real this example is. One of my coaching clients was J.P. Garnier. J.P. is CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. I asked J.P., what did you learn is about leadership as a CEO of GlaxoSmithKline? He said, I learned a very hard lesson. My suggestions become orders. My suggestions become orders. Now, he said, if they're smart, they're orders. If they're stupid, they're orders. If I want them to be orders, orders. I don't want them to be orders, orders anyway. My suggestions become orders. For nine years, I trained the admirals of the United States Navy. What's the first thing I always teach to new admirals? You get that star, your suggestions become orders. Admirals don't make suggestions. They give orders. Admiral makes a suggestion. What's the response? Aye, aye. That suggestion is an order. So I asked JP, what'd you learn from me when I was your coach that helped you the most? He said, you taught me one lesson. It helped me be a better leader and have a happier life. I said, what was the lesson before I speak? Breathe, breathe, and ask myself, is it worth it? And he said, half the time as the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, I've had the discipline to breathe and ask myself, is it worth it? What did I decide? Am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it? No. You see, effectiveness and execution is a function of A, what's the quality of the idea, times B, what's my commitment to make it work? David Ulrich taught me that. And we get so wrapped up sometimes trying to improve the quality 5%, we may damage the commitment 50%. Let me give you another great way to look at this from my friend Alan again, who I just love. Alan has a great quote. He said, as the CEO of this company, if I am not the expert on this topic, if anyone else inside or at this company knows the answer to this question better than I do, why am I speaking? Shut up. Why am I speaking? If anyone knows the answer to this question better than me, why am I speaking? And he is so wise. Anything he says will probably do more harm than good. You know what people would say? The CEO told me this. Alan just says a harmless thing. Have you thought of this? Have now, sir. Great idea, sir. Yes, sir. Thought of it now, Mr. Alan. Well, you know what he says? Not the expert on that topic. Why am I talking?
0: We started this conversation with the message from the Buddha who said, every breath I take is a new me. You say in the book that that's not a metaphor. He meant it literally. And as you mentioned this conversation, You're not the person you were even a year or two ago, even at the start of this conversation. So I'm curious, what's something that you've changed your mind on in the recent past?
1: You know, as I've grown older, my mission in life has gotten simpler and simpler and simpler. Historically, up until the last, let's say, two or three years, my entire expertise was helping successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in their behavior. And I still do that. Yet now that's not the only thing I do. Why? Well, half the people I coach are billionaires. One guy I'm coaching is worth $4 billion. This is what I'm supposed to do get you up to $4.1 billion. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> He's already a billionaire. Yeah. Now I really am much more focused on just trying to help people have a little better life. So I say, look, you know, my mission here is to help you have a little better life and maybe help the people around you have a little better life. That's about it. So that's one of the really big changes I've had is really just getting people focused on what do you need to have a better life?
0: Marshall Goldsmith is the author of The Earned Life, Lose the Regret, Choose Fulfillment. Marshall, thank you so much for your work and all your inspiration on coaching.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure.
0: If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. The first one, Echoing a Mistake I Know I've Made and Many Folks Have Made Over the Years in Over-Indexing on Empathy of... Jumping in a little too quickly to rescue people from their problems, especially the people that we're leading. That's why I'm recommending episode 284, the way to stop rescuing people from their problems. Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit, was my guest on that episode. We talked about some of the causes of that behavior, where how it comes from a good intention, but ultimately works against us when we're jumping in and rescuing people a lot. How to stop doing that on episode 284, if you find yourself falling into that trap as well, It's a must-listen for you, one of our most popular episodes over the years. I'd also recommend episode 391. Speaking of empathy, the expert on emotional intelligence, Daniel Goldman, joined me on that episode. We talked about getting better at empathy, and we looked in detail of some of the different types of empathy that Marshall and I highlighted in this conversation and how to do a better job overall with a term that is very broad and actually means a whole bunch of different things depending on context, episode 391 for more on that. And then, of course, when talking about empathy and emotional intelligence, self-awareness is so key for us as leaders. It does always start with us. If we're going to get better at doing all of this, we have to be more self-aware. Episode 442 is where to begin there. The way to be more self-aware with Tasha Yurik. We talked about some really practical things that almost all of us can do to begin to nudge ourselves a bit more on our own self-awareness. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com Website. If you have not done it before, I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership. Your free membership is going to give you access to a ton of benefits. The weekly leadership guide that you'll receive on email, access to all of the past episodes and searchable by topic in the library since 2011. And one of the other key benefits of free membership is access to my interview notes and highlights. Uh, just about every interview that I conduct, I spend time preparing for those conversations, of course, reading the books of authors, looking at the research and reviewing other interviews, preparing notes in detail. And then I post those uh, inside the episode notes for our free members. In addition to that, I also post some of the key highlights that I have pulled from their work that I think are the most important ones for you to reflect on in the context of the conversations here on the podcast. All of those are available, including, of course, the one from today's interview with Marshall. Uh, you can get that as part of your free membership. If you go over into the free membership, just click on interview and book notes. You will see all of the details there, of course, in every episode as well. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week and I'll look forward to seeing you back on Monday. Take care.